Welcome to Managing Marketing. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with Shira Saga, who's the Head of Analytics and Data Science at the Iconic. And we're actually here at the Iconic. Um, welcome, Shira. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for coming all the way here. Appreciate well, it. No, look, it's my pleasure because I'm actually looking forward to uh, hearing you speak at AdTech in Sydney, which is next March. Yep, that's right. I don't think you've uh, probably started putting your presentation together. No, but I pitched the idea and they really liked it. So it's kind of already in my head. So you just well, going to splash it up. I can understand that because uh, I, I was told it's called transforming your whole company into one big data team. And I think that's an incredible thought. I'm just wondering about the practicalities of it. But okay. has this come from experience or is this something that you see the opportunity? I comes partially from experience. It comes from the way I see data being used and the philosophy of how we look at data. So the way I look at it is like a supply chain, uh, not because of any particular affinity to it. It just makes a lot of sense. So when I mean supply chain, um, it's called a data supply chain or decision supply chain. Data is the raw material. Think of oil, think of coal, think of anything. It's the raw material. Data is a new oil. That's true. It's as raw as an whatever the oil is. Yeah, crude some, oil. Crude oil, for example. Straight out of the ground. Yeah, and then and in this day and age, so many systems are producing data. Everybody who buys a system has data now. It's no longer a paucity of data. Nobody has no data. Everyone has a lot of data and drowning in it. So data is the raw material. Now, the end product uh, in terms of supply chain is decision. Mm. At the end of the day, what you do with this data is decision. You need to make a better decision with it. I am so glad you said that because people go, oh no, what uh, what the output of data or data is, is insights. Yeah. And it's one of those terrible words that you go, what do they mean by an insight? But it's not, is it? Yeah. It's actually the, the most important role is to inform a decision. It's, at the end of the day, it's to inform a decision. And that if you believe in that way, then you believe that data teams or data uh, whatever organizations in a company are basically a servant organization to the business to help them make better decisions mm. so a date raw material called data becomes a finished product called decisions and there are some processes in between uh, think of a chemistry lab setup like sulfuric acid setup or a yeah. crude oil setup the one part and i'm just breaking it down into big blocks there are three big blocks in my head and mm -hmm. the way we think about it at the iconic the first block is data engineering just like crude oil needs to be brought up all the way from the ground up until somewhere, the engineering So builds, you can access it. Yep. So that you can access it, so that you can actually touch it and start seeing what is out there instead of just talking about this lostness monster, a mythical monster called data, right? Mm. So data engineering is technically, literally for me, pipelines and building the architecture, putting it in a database, cleaning it up so that everybody else can use it in the business and all of that stuff. So getting data from your source systems to a place where people can use it, that's data engineering at a very high level. Then once data, in, data is available, then that next part that comes in is the data science part. Uh, when I mean data science, what I mean is somebody can apply intelligence at, on that data at scale. Mm. It does not mean AI or ML or all of this stuff. It could be a simple dashboard. It could be anything. Uh, there are three levels of data science. One is the algorithmic part, which is the AI and ML part. Mm -hmm. The analyze part, which is basically deep diving into it and figuring out what is happening. And the third one is the inferring part, which is why did it happen and trying to put some reason behind it or storytelling with it. 
So to go back to your metaphor of crude oil, yeah. um, I see that part is a bit like uh, fractionation, yep. you know, where they pour the crude oil, which comes out as this big black, you know, when you've seen it, it's sort of, you know, an, an average sort of consistency. They put it into a fractionation plant yep. and it just separates. So you've got at the very top the most volatile. Yep. You've got then, you know, around the middle is your uh, petrols and fuels. Yep. Uh, and then you've got your oils, your lubricants. Yep. And then down the bottom, and this is the yep. bit I love, is the sludge that becomes the bitumen <laughs> on our road. So, you know, and each one has an important role. But yep. until it's actually fractionated, yep. there's not a lot you can do with yep. crude oil. So I, I like that metaphor. Yep. So we break it down. Yeah. And then we apply intelligence at scale. And the outputs of that could be multiple things. It could be, like I said, an algorithm or an analysis, a dashboard, whatever it is. And then the final part, there's still a final part. Like people stop at that part. They apply a lot of data science, data engineering. But the final part is the data translation. And what I call this in one line, it is basically translating math to English. Mm -hmm. So when you translate math to English, it's basically when you're translating the data into an understandable language. This could be through memos, through strategy documents, through dashboards, through models that talk. Uh, visualization. About, visualization. It could yeah. be anything that the business understands and says, yep, this makes sense. Yeah. So those are the three parts. And then when you do that translation, the business is going to say, now I understand all of this. I'm going to make a decision. And so the end point is the decision. And, and then, then that feeds back into impacting the data that you're collecting in the yep. first point in process. So it just right. keeps, it's a, it's a virtuous cycle, I like to yeah. call it. The more decisions you make, the more data you want to collect. The more data you collect, the more decisions you make and so on and so forth. Mm. Now that's how we think about the data supply or decision supply chain, right? Now, thinking about it that way, what tends to happen is then how do you get this done? Is there a lot of systems producing data and a lot of people want to make decisions out of this data translation? What people tend to do is they tend to either hire a lot of data scientists, uh, just hire a data scientist, hire a data analyst, business analyst, all these terminologies going out there. And they're so difficult to hire people that can do this at scale. When you start doing that cycle and it becomes faster and faster, you cannot keep hiring more and more people in the company to do data. So the way we think about it is, what if we could move data engineering to the people that get the data out, which is basically the tech team and the developers who produce the data, who build these source systems. What if we provide a way where they can directly get that data from the ground up to a place where we can all see without having to do much data engineering, which is basically be your own data engineer. So streamline your supply chain. Yeah. So basically they can get it to the market directly. And what if we could make the data translation much more easier through simulations and opti optimization dashboards and all of that view so that the business does not ask you to keep building that simulations or all of that stuff so they can make the decisions much faster. They can translate the data to math English by themselves. And if you can inner source both the data engineering and the decision science to the business, suddenly you have the whole business being a data team and you can focus on the parts where you're applying intelligence at scale. And that's what we mean by getting the whole team, the whole company to be a data team, rather than just having one data team that just does So this everyone thing. plays Our their role. part, their role in actually moving that process oh. forward. Yep. From collecting it, to preparing it, yes. to interpreting it, it, and, and then making a decision, decision. Yep. and then going around again. And so when everybody's involved, everyone feels accountable, everyone feels proud about what they've done. It's no longer, oh, it's a data request, just do it and then it comes back. It's not a transactional thing. It's more of a harmonious thing that happens. Okay, one of the things I like about that model and it overcomes the single biggest thing that I see within organizations is as soon as you would use the word data, there are those people that feel 
numerically literate. Yep. And, and this is not two groups because it's actually a continuum, right? Yep. And there are those people that are absolutely abhor anything to do with numbers, numbers. Yep. right? And I think it goes back to secondary school or even primary school yep. when people were taught mathematics badly. Yep. They suddenly went, oh, it's all too confusing. I don't understand it. It's not for me. True. Um, are you, are clearly you were a STEM what are they, yeah, that's what they call it now, that's STEM, technology, you know, yeah. science, technology, engineering, and maths. That was your focus at school. Yep, yep. And so what's happened is, you're right, that happens a lot. And so there is always this uh, pariah feeling of our data either being intellectually too complicated or data being too technically complicated. One of those things, right? It's either one of the intellectual things or the technical things. There's one thing that we continuously try to do is demystify it and then tell everyone all this thing that we do with data is basically applying logic through scale. That's all. It's a matter of scale. It's a matter of applying logic. Mm. And any human being walking, talking can apply logic. When you mean logic, somebody who's done this, 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 and this could have done this. That's logic. And we apply that through programming. And when you try to break it down into so simple logical steps, I think people start embracing it. It's less numbers and more logic. And then that's how we try to sell data as a solution within the iconic and outside. So, so um, I don't know if you've ever seen the, there's a TV series called House, which is about a... Yep. A doctor. A, a doctor who diagnoses, he has a saying, he goes, people lie yep. and results don't, numbers don't, people do. Yep. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, because one of the big challenges that people have, especially those people that don't like and are not comfortable with data, is that their concern over the impact of their right to have a gut feel yep. or an intuition. Yep, yep. But from what you're saying, I think you actually see that the two go side by yep. side. And I'll give you an example of how I mean by, what I mean by that, right? So let's take an example of uh, somebody at the warehouse, somebody, an operational team trying to work on an assortment algorithm that we built. Uh, mm -hmm. What that algorithm would do is it would tell you, if you scan an item, where do you put that item so that it can be picked and delivered efficiently and all that stuff. So let's say it, it helps you assort items in a more efficient fashion. Now, the standard way to go about it is, here's the algorithm, here's your gun, scan it, it tells you put, put an X, put it an X. But nobody's going to buy into it because people feel that they know how to run their warehouses mm -hmm. better. The way we did that was we opened up that algorithm, and I mean open up literally, to say these are all the components that we've considered to make this decision. This is the logic that we made decision. And then you could see the people saying, why did you consider that particular factor or feature? Maybe shoes should not be treated this way. Maybe that variable should not. So I had some input. Input from them. Yeah. And so, and which makes a lot of sense because they know their area much better and we know only our data much better. So when that, those two marry, they feel it's no longer our algorithm, it's their algorithm too. And so when they call it, they call it their algorithm. We don't call it the data team's algorithm, which is exactly what we want. We want people to feel it's as if something that we built for them and it's theirs and they can understand everything that's happening within and can start questioning us on specific factors of the algorithm and not the algorithm itself or why mm. we should use it. Look, that's really a really clever way of approaching it because a lot of people, you know, the term algorithm gets thrown around yep. a lot, especially, you know, Facebook and, and the like talk about algorithms, but they're not particularly disclosing as to what those algorithms are. Yep. And they also come with almost a stamp of they're infallible. Yep. But in actual fact, an algorithm is purely like an equation yep. that is trying to uh, mirror or um, 
create a model of what's happening in real life anyway, isn't that's it? True. That's true. And so there's a root word for algos, which means pain. Algia is pain. And yeah. the way I like to sell algorithms is it'll solve your pain. So all it's an analgesic, an algorithmic yeah. analgesic. That's what it is. That's how we like to think about it. Well, because it starts to actually, it can work two ways, can't it? One is that it starts to make it easier to mm-hmm. replicate. Yep. But the other is that if there are then any issues or problems, you have at least got a base model yep. that you can start to see either there is something wrong in reality or there's something wrong with the algorithm and yep. we need to adjust it to actually reflect yep. reality. Yep. And the other thing that we keep repeating and the, the, the motto that we have is let human beings do what human beings do best and let machines do what machines do best, which means there's a lot of grunt work involved in making a decision. Did you consider that, this, this, 25 other factors and looked into last year's an algorithm can do all of that for you, so you can just make a no, no go, no go decision. Mm. So human beings can spend that time doing that grunt work in something that's more intellectually smarter and better. And that's mm. why we've always progressively done stuff. And that's what our algorithms do. It'll take away all the decision making process, and then it'll help you just press yes or no. That's that's mm. how it, that's how. Which allows you to then make the sort of the final, de- you know, yep. the decision around it. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because the human brain is a phenomenal yep. data processor. Yep in that it doesn't necessarily follow a logic proce- a logical process. I think in uh, engineering they call it fuzzy logic. Yeah. It's as close as you can get to a, a human yeah. decision-making process. But when we get such large, and you talked about the huge amount of data, and we get that, um, what's that number, that we've produced more data in the past X, you know, two months than we did in yep. since the start of time, uh, it does mean that things like artificial intelligence are important because it will allow huge amounts to be processed and brought down to a human brain yep. level of processing. Comprehension, yep. Yeah, comprehension. Yep. Yep. Look, I, I want to ask you, and it's a personal question, um, how many languages do you speak? Uh, you mean the languages, the spoken human languages? Yeah. I think I speak around five fairly confidently yeah so I would actually say six and the reason is I've got a hypothesis or a belief that mathematics is a language fair enough that's true because every person and and uh, every mathematician I know uh, sees mathematics purely as a language and it was an interesting insight for me because when you think about it as a language Mm -hmm. in its own right and not numbers on a page it suddenly becomes like I speak one, I speak English. But when I listen to other people conversing in other languages, I go, well, that's really fascinating. And I think it gives someone access to, rather than thinking about mathematics as a uh, something to be w- concerned about, mm-hmm. that it is just another language. Yeah, that's true. It's uh, definitely true. And like some people who are too much into music, they like to think, uh, who are into both music and math, they can see music and math. Oh, they actually, completely linked yep. all music is based on mathematical principles that's true and so there are all this golden ratios and all of that yeah. interesting thing all of all of science has mathematics that's why it's seen as a pure science yep. because um, well every scientific theory at some point has to have a mathematical proof yep. for it to be proven yep. if you can define the theory in math, a math proof mm-hmm. it's actually seen as being a proven theory yep yep, yep, yep that's true yeah. so interestingly this is a small detour if you don't mind sure um, I'm not sure if you've read uh, 
Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. So there's one section in the book where he talks about this piece, right? He talks about how knowledge in the medieval ages was about scriptures multiplied by logic. Mm-hmm. People interpreting scriptures through logic. It's it's multiplications. So if you don't know scriptures, you have no knowledge, and if you have no logic, you can't interpret scripture. So it's some multiplying yeah. equation. And then they said in the scientific age, it's data multiplied by um, e- evidence, right? If you don't yeah. have evidence, you can't apply. Sorry, data multiplied by math, which is you don't have data, you can't apply math to it. If you can't know math, you can't apply data to it, and that's knowledge. And so that's what has brought this lot of knowledge about the world, applying math to that data yeah. at scale. And then now it's all about. experience sensitivity multiplied by experience which is taking that math to one more level which is experiencing that math for yourself and bringing the human condition yep. because we are um uh, emotionally driven beings yep. but bringing that in and it's so important i mean i think it's one of the reasons why behavioral economics for instance is grown so, so much, much. Yep. because you're starting to look you know i love that uh, term predictably irrational yep because it starts to actually define you know science is starting to define the human condition yep. and acknowledge that we are who we are yep but all of these things are tools that we've created yep. uh, it's interesting you started off in the middle ages because you have to remember that it was also a time when uh those that had the knowledge uh-huh. were desperately trying to keep, keep it to themselves. themselves you know the religious leaders wanted to keep the knowledge to themselves and the, the kings and the emperors would keep the knowledge to themselves the enlightenment and the renaissance uh was still uh giving that mainly to what became the middle classes but yep. the affluent and the wealthy and the educated Bourgeois. but it's it's increasing and one of the great things about the last last half of the 20th century now is the way that knowledge is now become so much more democratized yeah that it is you know the internet for all its flaws uh was you know because it was designed to make information available to everyone and yep. it has done that yeah i mean i think the only decision they made wrong was allowing anonymity <laughs> because it's led to crime and all you know and all sorts of uh activities going on that you know mm-hmm. it facilitates that as well that's fair enough that's a fair thing to say and that's again so with so much uh, access to data and democratization of everything uh that's exactly the principle we're trying to mirror the same thing with how we approach data to um the medieval ages for data was probably 15 20 years ago which is basically a few people in the company could get that data keep it to themselves they would talk about data thief terms where nobody could get access mm-hmm. and the only wisest people were the people who knew the password to the database yeah right and so we, it's come through a process to exactly mirroring the same knowledge approach and what we're trying to do with data is everybody should have access to data everybody should be able to understand and estimate and infer and make decisions based on that data that's exactly how we're trying to mirror our data approach as well so in my team of consultants mm-hmm. um cuz i have a really eclectic group of people and there's there's a couple of them that when they like to look at something they'll they'll go straight to an excel spreadsheet because the it's almost like they can see the patterns mm-hmm. in the numbers mm-hmm. right then there's the group that like yeah i can't really follow that please turn it into a bar chart or a you know make it visual for mm-hmm. me and then there's others that like storytelling you know tell me what this is actually saying when you get to that step I'm I'm sorry I'm going back to your supply chain mm-hmm. when you're getting to that step of 
you've processed it, you've made it available, and then you use the word translate. Because mm -hmm. I guess where my language metaphor of maths is a language is that it needs to be translated into lots of different formats. You know, there are visual people, there are numeric or numbers mm -hmm. people, and then there's the sort of storytelling, sense-making people. Have you found that you need to accommodate all those? Yep. So we try to... Uh um, accommodate all the way down to people who need to read it as a story. Mm -hmm. So at the Iconic, we have this principle of everything needs to be in the form of a memo. So it's a memo, which means it completely describes how did it, this whole problem start and what we've done and what are the numbers, what are the tables. And then if people are interested, there are graphs and then there are dashboards. So it's a whole document in itself. And that's how we try to translate that data back. So people can make a decision of, yes, I've read all of this and logically it makes sense and let's do it. So that's how we try to do it. So there's never, so we try to, um, how do you cater to all kinds of people? Mm -hmm. The people who want data, they can go to a dashboard and get the data out. People who want, don't want, want to see graphs. There are some people who hate point and click. Yep. They would rather not touch a computer than do point and click or yeah, use they a They want mouse. a piece of paper that they, yeah. or something that they can sit there and That's read. one extreme. And the yeah. other extreme is there are people, if there's anything except a black terminal and green text, they will not do it. <laughs> they will not touch it. And I've had, we know people and I work with people who are like, does this, is it a point and click tool? Is it a GUI tool? We're like, yes, no, I'm not using it. Because they strongly believe that a terminal based tool is, and we have, we cater to those people too. So we cater to those people, we cater to people who only will work with a point and click, and we cater to people who don't want to point click and get their hands dirty, just want to see, and we cater to all levels of the audience. So when you use the term translation, you mm -hmm. literally meant translating that information into all, I mean, I'm surprised that, um, uh, you haven't ended up with one of those graphic novels, you know, almost like a comic book. <laughs> so basically, we try to add all of these philosophical quotes in our memos. Yeah. So you read our memos, it's almost like a storybook. Uh, we try to keep it, why did this problem start, the whole situation, the complication, what are the questions asked, how did we answer it. So anybody who comes in, joins in after two years, wants to know how we made the decision, they can read it, they understand how the decision was made and what are the data points that supported it. So it's no longer about the data or the numbers, it's about what was the business problem. Yeah, what's, the, what's the story, the insight, the information that's going to inform yep. the person that has to make that decision? And you don't need a narrator narrating that. You don't need somebody clicking on a PowerPoint explaining it. You don't no. need notes. It is a whole compendium in itself that explains everything, including the footnote that says, oh, ABS means average basket size, so that people don't get confused by what the terminology is. Oh, good old three-letter acronyms, yeah. yeah. I think uh, probably the finance industry is the worst at that. They, yeah. they, they create them uh, almost as, uh, as if it's... Uh, gold yeah. yeah that's their version of keeping knowledge to themselves yeah well and a lot of organizations really do struggle with that don't they that yeah. that um information and, and what's that hierarchy so it's data information, information knowledge and wisdom yeah. is at the top of that pinnacle i had someone argue recently that it does it's not a linear process that you can can go from information to knowledge you don't have to go through those steps but um, going back to there are organisations where you see the data team is here and they're almost impenetrable. You know, and over here is the research and insights team. And um, how have you got, as part of building this supply chain, mm -hmm. how do you get those silos to break down? So I was, to be, in, a, in one word answer, I was lucky. Um, the other answer is I got at least at the Iconic, we got the opportunity to build it all the way from scratch again. 
when i joined we had two people uh, in the analyst team were working with me mm-hmm. and now we almost had 20 more people to work in this team uh, so what that has done for us is we've set it in a way where it's completely cross functional i.e. there is no data science team data engineering team the data translation team sitting separately what we do is we all are broken down in terms of the mission that we want to serve so are we solving a customer problem are we solving an internal problem are we solving some marketing problem basically we have three big divisions like that and then within each team there are a eclectic mix of data scientists engineers and all of them work towards solving a mission rather than solving a particular problem therefore it no longer says oh i'm a data engineer i won't give you data i'm a data scientist i don't do data engineering none of that stuff happens everybody is expected to do all sides of the spectrum everyone is expected to pump uh, get the oil all the way from the ground and sell it in the market and yeah. then get more money for that oil that they're trying to sell and that's that's the expectation we've set up so because we've set it up that way um, all of the teams all the team members have an x comma y like we call it which is an x axis is the data and analytics or the insights home mm-hmm. and the y is their home which they exclusively work for which could be marketing which could be operations which could be finance and so they always have two homes and they're always welcome to live in this home or the other one but they just solve one problem at scale Okay, so I'm going to be a little bit black hat, you know, the old, um, uh, what's he called, uh, de bono black hat here. You know, with all of these concerns around data security, when you have opened the supply chain up across the whole organisation, is there one point of responsibility for the security of the individual's data? Or is that something you also have to build across the whole supply chain? No, so what we've done is we've made data governance the bedrock on which we've actually created these teams. So data governance, uh, so govern comes from the Greek word kuberin, which mm-hmm. means to pilot or stream people in. Uh, so basically we try to create a data governance. It's not about in typically big organizations like banks, data governance all about filling up a form saying I want access to this data, this column. This. That's not what we mean. We mean we, the bedrock of data governance is who has access to it, are they looking at the right data in the integrity of the data and is it accessible in a way that they can rationally be confident that it's the right thing so we have a horizontal team that supports these vertical yeah. teams and that horizontal team is tasked with the job of making sure we exactly know who's accessing what at what level of access what can they see and can't see and everything is controlled from the back at their user id level by the platform by the platform mm-hmm. so if you are a level 5 uh, data accessor you can see everything. If you're a level three data accessor, you can see some things, but you can't see everything and we can give you access if you want to, but you'll be like a level three star. So it's almost like trying to mirror the difference where if you're level five general, you have access to the nuclear codes and everything else. Yeah. Similarly, you have access to the production. <laughs> the the football. <laughs> yeah, you have access to the football and you could just do drop table, yeah. uh, semicolon and do it. And look, that probably also aligns to the level that people need anyway to do the job. Yep. Because you know, I think one of the, the things is when you give people all the data, it suddenly becomes overwhelming again. Yep. So each of those levels would be in some ways consolidating or refining or yep. or uh, packaging yep. it so that it's easier to process for the task at hand. Yep. Yep. It's not a control thing beyond yep. just protecting the integrity of the database in yep. the first place. It's just say, uh, protecting them from themselves kind of thing. <laughs> if I give access to everyone on every system, they don't know 
do we look at this revenue or this revenue or yeah, this yeah. revenue and so if just have one access but there's only one revenue at least they're sa- they're sane enough to know that there's only one revenue so it's almost uh, cuz opening up everything is uh, counterintuitive to what you're trying to do which yep. is to make the raw resource as valuable as possible yep and just giving them the, as much raw resource as they want is not going to make that process simple that's true do you think the language that the industry mm-hmm. and I'm talking about not just marketing but the whole, all of business uses around data is also incredibly confusing because you know there was big data there's first party second and third party data there's native data that you know i mean these are all terms that just uh, befuddle most people yeah that's true and what tends to happen is it's uh, one of those uh, things that people try to create a sense of artificial hype around it mm-hmm. try to make it as if it's something that's more complicated or mystical or mythical than what it is and we keep trying to break that mystical barrier we keep trying to get people to understand and appreciate that we like there are instances where it's happened that we've gone into a meeting where somebody said i want to know this 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 thing about a customer you could take 6 months and come back and tell us and we answer that in 15 minutes it completely breaks their myth about how complicated it is mm-hmm. they thought it would take 6 months we answer that in 15 minutes like you could see their instant change in how they think about data and mm-hmm. then they start asking questions which we have no way to answer but at least now at least they're asking. asking and so what we tell people is ask us questions we can't answer and don't feel about if you have data don't worry about it that's not your worry just ask complicated questions if i did this this and this and if that happened what would happen and so that's what we should answer and it makes our jobs interesting too because then we get to work with interesting problems rather than solving the same daily thing again and again yeah that's right i mean almost throwing the challenge or or something that becomes a challenge is great because that's actually what drives progress forward sure. you know if you're just doing the same thing over and over again it becomes a bit prosaic you know a bit boring that's true um so i've got a uh, i did a uh, podcast i was having a chat with uh, martin cass who is running a media agency in new york for the last 4 years mm-hmm. which is all data informed so they've built series of algorithms and he said one of the things that amazed him is that the traditional media process you know media agencies would talk about being data informed but they would be working with maybe four or five sources of data mm-hmm. you know research proprietary research and the top um he said his you know the teams he's working with it's like they've got literally hundreds of sources of data and the more data they get the more accurate they're able to predict mm-hmm. um behaviors and i was just wondering just cuz knowing the theory of large numbers um does do you think there's actually a point where there is too much data and what's the role in actually working out the the what you need and what you should be using okay that's a really interesting question right um so what typically tends to happen is there are two kinds of problems that are solved one problem is i have no idea what's happening and just can you give me an answer problem and the other one is i exactly know what's happening can you make this much more optimal problem and i think there are a lot of problems in this day and age where i like i have no idea what's happening to my marketing dollar i have no idea what's happening to my customer and you don't need 200 data sources like you mentioned to solve that problem sometimes all you need like there are, i've been talking to people where you know how there's a rule of 30 you just need 30 touch points to answer a question and apparently when you talk to a live person in front you don't even need 30 data points somebody's proven that you just need one person who's really interested to you talk to and there's a data point of sample size of one is all you need yeah. so basically you don't need to 
over do an overkill of that if you're trying to just in a greenfield space but if you're in a space like say um high frequency buying in 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 say ad exchanges or if you're in stock markets where you already know everything it's at an optimal level and you're trying to optimize that 93.4 into yeah. 93.7 yeah. maybe you need a few more features and data points but again that's not really going to help like the netflix price is a really good example right they really had it their algorithms were recommending at some 90% or something I, i don't remember exactly what the number was and they wanted an algorithm that could predict it much better so they created this netflix price uh, ada price they i don't the ada algorithm or something and then yes it did increase the uh, accuracy by 3 to 4% but that took them almost a day and a half to actually get that recommendation out mm. so at what cost do you want to get an accurate recommendation do you want to wait for 2 years to make a recommendation on a customer who's so whimsical and flim like will move on or do you just want like to something that's really smart and quick that can get the answer out so that that is that's how we make the decision on what do you want do you want more features and look yeah all of this is really because it comes down to probability and outcome all of these models are really just predicting probability and yeah. they're trying to get become more accurate in the prediction yeah but uh it still amazes me when you talk to people about you know the the coin tossing exercise i've just tossed the coin and i've got three heads in a row yeah. uh what's the next one going to be the probability of it being another head and how people don't actually understand that it's always 50-50 every toss yeah. you know that they somehow start to believe that the previous uh uh, uh outcomes have an impact on the next one and it really worries me that uh that there's not that so even a, a base knowledge that people have on very simple mathematical principles like probability and outcome and statistics yep that's true and so we try to yeah it's true it's f- fair enough uh but because they are very basic principles i mean they're principles that are alive in everyday life we're not even talking about high end business or the stock market just in everyday life they're quite useful mathematical principles yep and so it's fair enough it's a, it completely comes boils down to the education system and how math is taught and how people understand math the physical value of learning something is quite different to learning it on on a graph so for example i'll give you an example i'm not sure if you've heard of the log normal distribution right so the log normal mm-hmm. distribution is quite famous distribution mm-hmm. but people are bored of it they don't want to memorize it they don't want to memorize the distribution function but log normal distribution happens to everyone so the growth of your hair the growth of your nails mm-hmm. everything is a log normal distribution yeah. and when you teach people how long your nail is going to grow as a log normal distribution nobody's going to forget it or when people are stood on a queue it's a simple poisson process yeah. like what's going to happen you stand in queues all the time in all your lives and so if you understand the poisson process you're not you're going to pick pick the best queue to stand in yeah. so if if math is not that way people don't forget so it so you think it's the lack of practical application yes. in the way that it's taught yep. is why people reject it yep so if you learn a poisson process and it's just some weird probably density function nobody understands it versus let's teach poisson process stand in a queue in the classroom yeah. and then figure out how people come into that counter and get away you've learned something valuable and you learn something about the world that you can use in your real day life. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. But uh cuz I imagine you know if, if uh there is a big push to encourage students to follow STEM and um one of the biggest areas is actually cuz you've got a quite a sizable uh team, haven't you? A data team here. Uh it is difficult to recruit, yep. isn't it? Yep, that's true. And so we have this policy of trying to going 
trying to go back to uni uh, trying to go as fresh as we can mm-hmm. uh, because knowledge is not really something that we are after uh, we are not really about do you know this tool and technology and this that's not how we operate because something that you know today in 2 years will be completely irrelevant in the data analytics space it's more about are you willing to learn and it could be anyone are you willing to learn and more importantly unlearn what you've learned previously because that happens a lot yeah you learn something and you've done it for 5 6 years and you think that's the only way to do it and you come into the in the area and they say there's no other way to do it which is not fair both to the area and to yourself so that is the only thing we look for and so when you when we start looking at with a different optics with a different lens on are they more willing to unlearn and reinvent themselves and they're not worried about what they know that's that's the kind of people look for it's, it's uh, something i've heard before cuz uh, i have a colleague in uh, in southeast asia he trolls through the universities especially um uh, china and india for those graduates or those uh, undergrads that are coming through because he said as soon as someone's had even a year in the in industry they've been taught all of these or or been exposed to all of these flaws in the application Yep. He says he wants pure he wants people as pure as possible because and the other thing he looks for is their ability to explain complex in very simple terms yep. because all of his it goes to your translation again the ability to be able to do the analysis but then bring it down not to simple but simpler so that other people can process it yeah so there is apparently uh, the motto of the city of naples is avia pervia for those who know latin avia pervia is the motto of the city so it in a video somewhere and that's what we try to do here we try to ask the people the same thing right which translate literally translates to making the complicated look simple mm. so which is demystifying data making it look as if it's nothing it's 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 okay we can do it instead of saying oh it's very difficult you can't do it you need some special glasses and three extra pairs of eyes to do this problem is not how we treat it Well, look, I've just noticed the time. Thank you so much for uh, sitting down and having this uh, conversation, Chira. I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing your presentation at uh, AdTech in March. But uh, I'm wondering before we go, uh, do you think it's possible to build me an algorithm to give me the tat slot I numbers for next Saturday night?